Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Carrie Fernandez. Carrie's a principal at DUDEC with almost 30 years of professional planning related experience, specializing in the planning, environmental, and development industries. Her diverse background of education and experience includes permit processing with local jurisdictions, coordination with public agency staff, preparation of CEQA and NEPA documents, project management, due diligence, and feasibility analysis. She has also served as project manager and primary author of many environmental review documents throughout San Diego and Imperial counties, including the San Diego County Wind Ordinance. She also works with several Native American tribes in the Western United States in the preparation of tribal environmental documents. Through this experience, she's developed a broad understanding of policy, planning, and environmental issues she discusses with us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel, and today's guest is Carrie. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to have you. So let's start as we always do. Tell us how you're connected to AEP. Sure. So um, I've been part of the EP since the really the very beginning of my career. Um, I, I started uh, not in the environmental profession, but as soon as I got my first job working with our um, well-esteemed Brian Mooney, um, he always had very high um, values uh, towards AEP and other professional organizations. And he really encouraged even young planners to get involved, to serve positions on boards. And so, you know, I was always being asked to like volunteer to, you know, work at the awards or whatever. And so um, it was it was really fun. And I got to meet, you know, obviously a lot of people in the industry, a lot of, you know, future colleagues that I didn't know yet. And um, that's actually how I ended up um, at DUDEC was at, at, from a connection at an AEP luncheon. So, yeah. Do you, do you remember what the AEP luncheon topic was? Oh, geez. Well, considering it was in like 1999, that's probably a no. <laughs> it was about the apocalypse, the impending apocalypse, Y2K coming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so Brian Mooney is, uh, he, his name comes up on this podcast quite a bit. He's uh, definitely an AEP celebrity, to put it mildly. So, <laughs> yeah, as we let, a lot of us like to call him uh, Papa Mooney because he sort of served as the the, the father, the you know, the um, mentor for many of us who worked for him or didn't even just in the profession. So, yeah, cool. yeah, that's what I keep hearing. So, I'm glad to hear his name again. And so what ultimately, so as you got started, you said you, you know, AEP really catapulted you into your career with DUDEC, but what, how did you first get started in the environmental field? Like what first attracted you into the environmental industry and profession? So it's kind of a funny story. So I grew up in the Central Valley and my dad was um, high school teacher, art and photography, and was very much, you know, hippie environmentalist. And I mean, we were, it was so strict in our house that if we brought home a styrofoam container, we have to like go down the block and put it in someone else's garbage because we would get grounded. We would take our foil and, you know, reusable containers to the Mexican restaurant for our leftovers. Like he was no joke and, you know, organic gardening and the whole thing. And so when I first moved to San Diego, my first temp job was working at a developer for a developer. And I, it was just like entry level assistant position. And 
but I got to, you know, really learn a lot and learn a lot. I was actually reading environmental impact reports as part of due diligence. I was doing some entitlement planning. Um, and so I did that for, for four years and, and the whole time, you know, I'm just like not really telling my dad what I'm exactly doing and who I'm exactly working for. And so um, at the point of my career when I was going to go to grad school and I was going to make a decision on what I was going to do, um, I was going to try to do more maybe urban planning. I wasn't sure. Um, and then when I had the opportunity to work for Brian, I got to do both, which was nice. Um, but I sort of fell towards more environmental planning. I, I just I think I always thought I would go to law school and, and be an attorney and I love law and and policy. I just um, I didn't want to go to law school. My husband's an attorney and I saw that and um, I, I much more rather, you know, just interpret the laws on a daily Sorry, basis. Did you say Sorry. Um, on a daily basis. And um, and so it's just been very much a natural fit. And I'm, you know, 92 percent um, CEQA and NEPA practice. And I do a little bit of policy planning still. So that's great. I love that the stories about you growing up and hiding the styrofoam and see it's, you know, you think about like typical stories about what kids are hiding from their parents <laughs> and yours is like, no, we're, we're hiding the styrofoam and this. I was doing that too, but I was, but it was also styrofoam and, um, <laughs> and you know, it was great. I mean, my dad has since passed away, but you know, it definitely, we still feel it, you know, we, you know, my sister and my mom and I still, you know, are like, what would dad say about us, you know, using all those paper towels, you know, whatever. <laughs> Jessa, I'm laughing because my family's the opposite. My dad's a developer. And so when I was studying environmental studies and economics, I was hiding all of my eco-friendly lifestyle tips from my family. And just slowly as an, as a, you know, more mature adult, I try to divulge what I'm doing and maybe we can change their portfolio a little bit, but yeah, it was like, um, my parents still monogram styrofoam cups and carry them around drinking their ice water out of styrofoam. It's, oh, I just shamed them. Sorry, parents, but <laughs> it's the opposite of how Gary grew up. That's funny. Yes, I, I love that, though. Like, what an impact to have, because I think, you know, I was talking about this recently with someone where I feel like depending on what area of the country you're in and what industry you're in, it's can be very socially acceptable or unacceptable to be using styrofoam or single-use plastic or water, like reusable water bottles or single-use water bottles. And so I love that that's what you grew up with and already had that mindset and, you know, carrying it with you. It was definitely, definitely not common where we lived. I mean, I, I, Central Valley was, you know, not progressive, let's just say, um, but even like he was the, the student or the teacher advisor for his high school's Students Against a Vanishing Environment Club. And he would have like in the rally court, he would have, you know, somebody come from UC Santa Cruz and talk about how much water is used in livestock. And he was almost like almost fired because all the farmers and ranchers in town wanted his, you know, said that, that he was not supporting the local economy. I mean, it just was it was pretty crazy. Yes. When you said Central Valley, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, that seems surprising um, <laughs> to hear that. And so, yeah. You know, growing up with this and with this mindset of your dad and his influence and getting in, you know, through development and now with CEQA and as an environmental planner, you know, the word sustainability comes up quite often. And what does sustainability mean to you? Like, how do you define it? And what do you see the future of sustainability? 
It's interesting over the last, um, you know, several years as our, you know, our company has evolved and, and, and things that didn't even exist five years ago, certain practices, certain requirements, general plan elements that didn't exist before, um, you know, we're seeing that it's so interwoven. The sustainability discussion is, it is, you know, it is climate change um, and how we adjust and adaptation, but it's, it's everything, I mean, everything's so interconnected. It's water supply, it's, you know, uh, you know, air quality and, um, I mean, just really everything you can look at, it has, it goes back to if, if we're not thinking about sustainability, we're basically, um, you know, headed for doom. Um, and so I think there are a lot of really great policies, legislation that have occurred that help to us to be thinking about it. But I think the whole, like, um, you know, it has to be one comprehensive solution and thoughts about it. It can't just be, oh, we're just going to, you know, recycle. It's like, no, we need to reduce the amount of consumption. And how do we do that? And, you know, you mentioned single use plastics and, and things like that. I mean, I was just thinking today, I haven't had a new coffee maker in several years. And there's, I absolutely do not need another coffee maker. But I thought, hmm, I wonder if I, and then I just thought, what am I doing? We can't do that. That's not sustainable. That's not, you know, to continue to, to do those things. And I think, you know, as there's, especially in maybe Southern California, where we have ample goods and the economy's great. And it's, you know, you know, this, our first world problems, um, you know, finding better ways to communicate to, you know, the broader context about, how we can address, you know, our individual contribution, our corporate responsibilities, contribution, you know, and then obviously our industry, we're, um, we're not advocates necessarily, but at least the educational component, I think is, um, is really, you know, a, a good thing to be striving for. When I was in university and studying sustainability, you know, we kind of started looking at how it was defined in the 80s, and then how it changed over time. And now I look at it, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's like this interconnected woven web of all the things like they're all touching. So it's, it's just everything. Um, and for me, what really struck home, I'm interested in your opinion on this matter. What really struck home for me was the disproportionate environmental hazards and benefits based on community type. So like environmental justice, for example, um, you know, polluting low income, communities uh, and citing particular projects in those areas because the land is cheaper and then it keeps them, you know, sick and poor. And that is what really, at first when I studied, it was like, I wanted to save the fish and you know, starfish and the seahorses. And now I'm like, I want to save the people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy too. It's not always that industry goes to those neighborhoods. A lot of times, the industry was there and then the communities can't get out from under because who would move there? Who would redevelop there? Um, and I've had projects in the Wilmington area about Los Angeles and, you know, Barrio Logan and some of the others, you know, that um, just, and just those are Southern California examples, but that, you know, it, I've really been impressed by like city of national city, for example, that have really tried really hard to, you know, their whole city has like patches of EJ communities, you know, and so because they had a bunch of um, non-conforming land uses and, and since they've updated their general plan, 
it's sort of like they kind of took the bull by the horns and said, you know, it's good. It starts with the land use policy and then it's political decision making really standing behind those, you know, those policies. And so, um, you know, I, I agree. I think, you know, our, our planning and urban design group, um, are, we're doing a lot of environmental justice work, both um, in general plans, but also in other types of policy policies. And, um, and it's, it's just, it's sort of taken off like wildfire. I, I think just the understanding of it all. I mean, you know, we're talking about um, on, you know, obviously the redlining that, that occurred historically in, in different communities and, and how we ensure that we untangle ourselves from that. Um, because a lot of the stuff, it's really still there and pervasive. And you're right, like, I think the city of San Diego is great. They use the climate equity index to, to help in their decision-making and at least as a, a fact to help in the decision-making on, on different things. And um, I just think that the equity part of it is, is again, it's like sustainability. It's in everything. There's, there's nothing that we can't be, you know, talking about. And organizations that have always been a little bit of a thorn in the side of the, the CEQA practitioner, like Environmental Health Coalition or other, um, they're keeping us honest and they're making sure that, you know, they've been banging this drum for a long time. And, and I'm, I'm glad it's finally the stuff they've been talking about is actually on the front page of the newspaper, you know, so um, I think it's a positive thing. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. I'm really interested in what are some of the, I don't know if the if coolest is the right word, but what are some of the your your favorite projects that you worked on in your career that have imp significantly improved um, economic development or sustainability in a community in California? <clears throat> one that'll seem a little off maybe, but um, I prepared one of the first tribal environmental impact reports um, for the uh, Tuolumne Rancheria um, up in Tuolumne County. And it was, it was one of those, and I was doing another, an unnamed tribe at the exact same time. And, and Tuolumne partnered with the community, you know, the tribe really partnered with the community, like the head of the prison was the chair of the, you know, tribe. And it was just this very organic, um, and it was a casino. It was one of the first, you know, uh, under the compact, um, in 1999. And it was, um, it has, absolutely changed the lives of every member they've now they've super diversified their economic development it you know it really brought you know the level of poverty that that particular tribe you know was facing it allowed you know funding of tons of environmental um cleanup on you know different properties it allowed for a lot more um you know just investment in infrastructure that they didn't have before and they're truly partners in that in that community and um and it just you know i, I was able to see that over the course of time um at the time it was very challenging you know, obviously controversial and things but um it ended up being a real not just amenity for the tribe but really for the community as well so that was that was one of a, just a really you know first of its kind for me um and then there's been lots of other other projects that, you know, uh, one of my favorite projects of all time was the Chilla Vista Bayfront Master Plan EIR, which was, you know, I'm able to now work on implementing projects that are coming to fruition. So it's going to change the west side of Chilla Vista. Not quite yet, but um, but I foresee just how, you know, really cool that that project has been. It's not every day that we hear 
yeah, a tribal project or, well, a casino project. I hear lots of tribal projects that are cool, uh, like really cool habitat restoration projects, um, innovative like pilot studies on how we fix that or that, this or that habitat. And um, yeah, so thank you for sharing the, the casino because I'm always interested in how I, so I've only worked with tribal entities as stakeholders in a project. They've never been my client other than one time I worked on this tiny, tiny little thing for the Torres Martinez tribe in Imperial Valley. But um, it's, I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on how, um, like, did they partner with a funding institution or was it completely tribal led? Was it their vision? They wanted to develop it. Like, how did that whole thing come together? So under the, the legislation at the time, um, and I think it's changed a little bit, is that if a tribe was going to, if they did not have um, a, another tribal investor, so if they had a private, say Harris wanted to come in and be the investor developer for the casino, it, that was a federal action under the National Indian Gaming Commission, which is a NEPA process. So what the state compact allowed for was that if they were not going to be funded by a private in institution and was another tribe and there happened, the Yavapai Apache um, in Arizona had a, an investment group and a development group that was able to act as the sort of the sponsor of it and, and funded because they for, had had successful ventures for many years. And so there was an individual sort of a program manager that came in and helped, um, you know, to, to facilitate it because it was, you know, very, very new. I mean, there were casinos, obviously, you know, but like the ones in San Diego County, but this was going to be, uh, you know, the first under that compact, which was really going to give, you know, the tribes, the sovereignty to, you know, ultimately it was sort of like a management agreement. And then over time they would be able to control it, um, fully. So it's very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I, I've, I've, never experienced that directly. I remember when they were building one of the casinos in San Diego County, um, just kind of recently, and it was really controversial due to traffic and all these other things. Um, but I selfishly really wanted the tribes to develop whatever they wanted to, to, to develop. I just want them to do what, whatever they want to do. I feel like they should be able to do. Um, but as, aside from the tribal one, um, the Chula Vista Bayfront Master Plan what is uh, a current implementing project that you're working on? I am so interested in like, what's the, what's the next thing that's going to be done down there? So the first that, you know, they have a, a several uh, requirements for things that need to be online first. So they're, you know, the, the signature part was one uh, they're currently entitling the Pacifica residential component, which is um, really cool, which they had to be a, a land swap because it was in Port Tidelands and state lands commission very complicated, um, but the actually they're about to break ground on the resort convention center, which is, you know, it's it's Gaylord Marriott. Um, and if you've ever seen other Gaylord properties throughout the country, they're very unique. Um, but uh, so that just got their financing approved. And so they're, they're you know, kind of laying background infrastructure to get that stuff done. Uh, the, the RV park has been um, probably open a year, I think. And I've heard rave reviews. I haven't stayed there. They have like little yurt cabins too that you can rent out. Um, and and yeah, there's just a lot going on. There's and it, you know it's really providing a lot of economic stimulus for all the properties um, along the west because you know all the investment in recent years have been in the sort of the southeast, you know East Lake, East, you know those different communities, Otai, um, and so now it's 
it's really exciting to see, you know, a really transformative process for, you know, a whole 580 acre, you know, area. So it's very cool. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your experience with these really cool projects. I kind of want to shift gears and ask you about your leadership experience at Dudek. Tell us what you do on a regular basis. What are your responsibilities on a regular basis and how you got to that position with Dudek? Sure. So I started Dudek um, almost 16 years ago and I was, it was very small, very small little CEQA group um, led by June Collins, who is still the, the mentor of all mentors for me. Um, and so we, uh, you know, it was a, a small group. We were led by June. And then as we got bigger, then, you know, June moved up to vice president and Joe Monaco became the leader. And then, and then Eric Wilson. And then at a certain point, everyone sort of, as they moved up, I sort of just kind of took the next position underneath. Um, and so I've been managing our sequinipa group for the last uh, five years. Um, we're, we're always, not always, but we're about 50 people, um, throughout the company and, and, you know, we are, we were primarily a California based firm, but now we have offices in Portland and Florida and Virginia and, uh, Colorado. So, um, really repositioning a little bit in some of the NEPA work that we're doing on, you know, renewable energy, BLM, um, forest service, things like that. Um, and, and so my day to day is I'm a, Two things I'd say, I'm a connector. So I make sure that like somebody says, I need this for, I've got a new project and who would be the best? And I'm like, it's you know, that person, that person. So it's a lot of just keeping up with knowing our new hires, um, not just in the CEQA group, but but throughout the firm and understanding our surface, surface, service capabilities. Um, and then I think the other thing that I do is just really, you know, try to support, I think, um, there's a, you know, everyone in this profession right now is really busy. There's a lot of, you know, um, really exciting things going on with our projects, but, um, it's a lot of pressure and, um, you know, a lot of people are very much hitting burnout levels and, you know, have been, you know, working slugging away for the last two years without a lot of fun involved. And so really trying to ensure that the people are getting the support they need. If we need to talk about, fixing, you know, pushing back on deadlines if we need to, getting better support, workload management, ensuring that project managers in our Orange County office are dying and the people in our Sacramento office can support. And so it's just a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm a mom and I was a, I was a young mom when I started at Dudek and I, I, I that is super critical to me to, to be the, the woman that shows, especially working moms that, you can do it. It's, you know, and you, and there's a way to do it without really making sacrifices in your career. And so, you know, that is, is very important to me. I mean, I, I say that about women, but I, I mean it about the, the young working dads too, that, you know, it's, I remember what it was like and my kids are now 19 and 17. So I'm sort of, you know, on the other side of the hill, but, um, but it's, it's a really, um, I, I'm a cheerleader. I'm a nurturer, you know, I'm a mom. I, I mother my, my people, even when they're, you know, closer to my dad's age, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I think uh, Justin and I both agree that mothers in business is an added benefit, added value, because uh, we're just able to um, empathize, relate, connect, nurture, push, um, be firm, be fun. I appreciate you also saying that in the, during the pandemic, everyone's getting a little in need of fun <laughs> and like 
uh, play. Um, and I've, I, I did also want to mention that uh, Joe Monaco was the first time I ever heard of Dudette because he was holding an informational session, like an AEP event about the desalination plant. And I was really young at the time. And I was just like, what? I didn't know that we could do stuff like that. I didn't know that environmental planners worked on like cool projects like that. I mean, I was just in the gutters collecting stormwater samples. And then here I'm hearing about Dudek working on this like awesome desal plant. That was, that was a really big deal. So it's fun to hear his, his name again and how like you guys are all progressing. I'm in Dudek. And the other thing I wanted to mention was I'm also impressed with Dudek's collaboration beyond the internal Dudek company. Um, you have mentioned to us offline this special project that you're working on with some other environmental consulting firms uh, where you're helping students shadow and work on cool projects. Walk us through that because I'm, I'm like really pumped about it. Sure. So um, during pandemic, um, the CEOs and presidents of um, a group of, you know, consultants, environmental planning consultants, um, got together and they would have these like monthly, like, how are you handling this? And how are you, you know, and it was, it was really cool. So it was Gary Jacobs and Joe Monaco and, and others. And they, um, they started to talk about, you know, and, and what was happening in the world, right? And, and all the, the unrest um, regarding, you know, DEI and, and really trying to, you know, we are an underrepresented in the DEI field, planning and, and environmental planning. It just, it just is the school, where the schools are that, that have the programs, you know, tend to be underrepresented. Um, by the BIPOC community. So the, I, I think they, they, it was of their mindset to try to do something. And so um, they came up with this idea to do a multi-organizational DEI internship program. And so for the last four months, I'd say, we've been meeting a couple times a month, um, representatives from each of the five firms, um, Rencon, Ascent, Placeworks, Dudek, and ESA. And um, and we've come to, we, we, created a program. We are working with the city of Sacramento to do a, uh, a charrette. It'll be a two week charrette in Sacramento um, coming up with um, each, each company selected two interns um, that were, that were selected by their program, um, either their programs director or their, um, you know, so it was a direct solicitation. And um, we were able to come up with a really fantastic 10 interns that will spend a week at the office that has, is hiring them, two weeks collectively in Sacramento to work on this charrette of redevelopment of a, of a, a kind of an underserved community in Sacramento. Then after the two weeks, there'll, there'll be a big project. There's community outreach, there's site planning, urban design, um, environmental analysis, big presentation, and then they'll come back to our companies to serve out the rest of the summer. And the process has been really rewarding. And every single interview that I was on, we, we split them up. I was just like, these, these kids are 19 and 20 years old. I'm like, I would hire them tomorrow. Like, it's just really impressive. Um, you know, people who've talked about them being, you know, food insecure, have been homeless, um, you know, really struggling to, to stay in this, to, into the environmental profession and, and their academic journey. And so um, it's really cool. I, you know, we said this is the inaugural year and we hope to do it, you know, every year from now on. And it, it took a lot of work to just kind of get the program started, but I think um, I, I'm excited to report out, you know, at the end of the summer on, on how these, these DEI interns um, 
what they've accomplished. Uh, I, I really hope you share it with the whole AEP community because um, uh, June 3rd is when we have our AEP Institute in Sacramento, where we're talking about climate change, air quality, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon neutrality, and environmental justice. And so your interns are going to be doing their thing, and then they're going to work with y'all for a while. And then at the end of the summer, we can, uh, I mean, usually at the AEP Institute, we come out with a big report that explains like all the knowledge and the wisdom that we gain talking about these subject matters. Here's a report. We did it when we, when we did the Institute on Housing. We did it when we did an Institute on Wildfire. So hopefully we do it for this one. And we also, AEP as a DEI consultant, we've delivered a survey to um, understand where the profession needs to expand and open and be more uh, inclusive so that we can attract all these people who, whose lives are influenced by urban and environmental matters. And then they get to make a change and actually have an impact on their lives by working in a profession that changes their lives. And I feel like the AEP Institute coupled with your initiative and your interns would be a really um, influential experience for our profession, like a, a really awesome deliverable in 2022 to say, look, we really leaned in and investigated how we can do better as a profession. So I hope you'll share that information so that AEP can like open its doors bigger. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the one of the women that we're hiring, she said, I mean, she was a criminal justice, criminal law and society major, and they made her take an urban studies. One of her electives had to be an urban studies class and she took it and it was like the sea parted and she realized that it was like, this is what I need to be doing. It's why is there crime in these neighborhoods? Oh, because they don't have, you know, fresh food, transit, you know, I mean, all the things it's like, and, and it just, it was like this, her saying, I want to be somebody who can help so other kids don't have to grow up the way that I grew up. I mean, it, it absolutely is true, Laurel. I mean, it's, it's really, I'm excited. I'm really excited about it. That is so impactful and so powerful to hear that in just the potential this program has is, is amazing. And I'm thinking, you know, as you're speaking about planning and, you know, Laurel's a planner and your peers that we've talked to on the podcast as planners, are you are also talented at seeing the big picture and how all the systems are connected and how you pull one thread, it unravels another. And I think it's just such a gift and skill to have to drive this real change and not put band-aids on issues. So I, I love hearing you talk about this program and like the students coming up, it's just like, it gives me chills to think about the impact it has and like can have throughout, you know, the years, like, as you said, you're just getting started. So would love to, yeah, would love to hear updates on that and have you back too to talk about that would be so fun. Um, another question I have too, and I'm sorry, I'm bouncing around a little bit is something you had said earlier. And, you know, I'm hearing all this involvement you have with, you know, leadership and mentorship and doing your, you know, sequel, your day job <laughs> at the same time. And, you know, you mentioned burnout and how do you, as an individual, how do you protect yourself and your energy to prevent, um, or, you know, avoid burnout? I think it's inevitable in certain times, right? I mean, I, 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 I think it's part of the, it's part of the job and I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, I understand, you know, our clients, we need to make sure that they're getting what they need. But I, I think, you know, for me personally, I think 
um, one, I have to exercise every day. Like it is such a, it, it sets my mind. I go first thing in the morning and, you know, sometimes I've forgotten I even did it. It's so early and I'm half asleep. Um, but I think that helps me just to get a, a really stable sort of emotional, like let's start my day and whatever. I also think that I work at a firm that's always been really, you know, flexible. And if I need to, you know, I, I'm just having a rough day. I got to walk down to Swami's for 30 minutes and come back and, you know, just kind of reset. Um, but I think that, you know, for the people that I, that I am seeing the burnout is, you know, being able to talk about it with somebody, with your supervisor or with their a peer and say, you know, it's maybe not as big and as overwhelming and as horrible as it's, it looks on a piece of paper. It's sort of like, let's figure out what you can do today and then the next day. And let's not think about all these things that you've got on your plate. A lot of it, I think, is just a mental, like, anticipating how, how crazy it is. And then also, you know, right now, we have to be able to push back on certain things that, you know, unrealistic um, deadlines or, you know, uh, I, I just think we have to take care of our people. And so, you know, supporting a little bit of that pushback. Um, but we just went to a flexible leave policy where people, you know, we're encouraging people to take the leave you need. You know, we don't want you to take it in a mental health leave. We want you to take it as I need a Friday to go to the spa and to get, you know, reset or, you know, take a couple weeks um, and have a fun vacation and, and feel like you're coming back. Because I do know from things like maternity leave those clients are still there when you get back, whether you, you know, it, it, you know, it feels like so overwhelming to leave work for a little bit, but, um, but it's, you know, it's really important. And, you know, sometimes I'm doing a little bit of the shoulder tap, like uh, you have not taken a day off this year. Like it's, you know, about time. So um, I think just, just being aware of it too, and, you know, helping to coach people through the, the most stressful times. And, like I have some people, they just like to work weekends. Like they just, they, they're, that's their style. And I, you know, I'm of a big philosophy that you should work weekends and maybe an overnight, like twice a year, not 52 weekends a year. Right. So, um, you know, I'm trying to just keep, you know, manage expectations and, and things like that. Thanks for being the um, person in leadership. Who's not afraid to push back on unrealistic deadlines. Our profession right now, there's, more job opportunities than qualified professionals. And so it's ever more important that we take care of our employees and stand up for them. And uh, just because we're, a lot of us are at home and we can work a lot more because we're not commuting. Um, I think it's very impressive that you said, oh, you should only work a couple weekends a year. I mean, there was Throughout the pandemic, I was there was never not a time when I wasn't working on weekends. There just what it was constant, and um, that yeah, is nothing thing. else to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a kind of bored of my husband. Like, what am I gonna do? Um, no, I, I'm kidding. But but also, I just think life is gonna be a little bit different. And Dudek um, instituting a f more flexible policies. I believe that's going to be a competitive advantage in attracting talent as well as attracting clients. And I think over time, our profession, the environmental consulting businesses, um, developers, enterprises, it's going to be a lot more flexible. And I don't think, I, I agree. There's a lot of people that are like, I've got the energy to work on a weekend. I'm one of those. There'll be a Saturday where I'm pumped, <laughs> you know, and there's a Monday where I'm not. So like having that flexibility, I think is, 
is really important. So I just want to give a shout out to all the businesses that are allowing the flexibility that people need, especially women and mothers, because that stress of, I, I want to have my job and also like produce a human. <laughs> that is like, how did you manage that? What was one of like your habits um, during pregnancy and maternity leave and getting back into the work environment that you were like, okay, this is a hard no. I'm never, I'm never giving up on this one habit that I'm going to do to take care of myself. I was really lucky. I, I always worked from home on Fridays always. And that was my day where I was like, if I need to volunteer in the classroom, if I need to do a doctor's appointment for the kid, if I need to, you know, and so it was just like, just this, like, I can, I can get up in the morning and I, we can kind of stay in PJs, for, you know, a couple of hours before the day starts. And, and I always, you know, got my hours in, but, but it just was this, you know, and I encourage young moms to do the same, like pick a day, you know, it's hard to get all the stuff. And, and I used to say that, you know, it's not, not being a mom or being a worker. It is, you're responsible for 22 baggies of carrot sticks on Tuesday. And it's hundred days of school day. You need to find a hundred pennies and bring them in a baggie. I mean, it's like all this little stuff that mothers have to think about and fathers too, but mothers have to think about. And so just really having a day where you're just like, I just need to, you know, do it. And I, I think that that really was something that, I mean, it was only probably, I'd say maybe in the last five years that I just really started, like I come in on Fridays because I don't really have a reason not to, but, um, but I think that that was really important. I also was, you know, at certain points I had a, carrier and I was bringing my kid in and being like, I have a call. Can you watch her? And I would run down the hall and do my call and, you know, run back. Um, I had an extra saucer in my office on the days when I just had to bring my kid in and, you know, it just, it just always sort of worked out. And I, I know that some, especially agencies are, are, you know, requiring kind of a full-time back in the office. And, and I'm not saying that, um, that the value of coming into our office, especially for younger, you know, entry level planners coming into this thing, to me, it's, it's really important to hear your peers and, you know, um, mentors and things. But, um, but I think, you know, there's a time and a place for, you know, taking care of yourself and doing, you know, that thing that gets you to not go over the, the edge ledge, um, you know, just figuring out what works, you know, with your company on, on what you can swing or not. One strategy my dad always implemented as a developer is that everyone on Fridays went home at noon. There's no one, like he's shutting the office in at noon and you're not allowed to come in. And that set the tone that like, like you need to vacate for a weekend. <laughs> and I don't know many developers that do that. Um, but I think, I think that that that's really special. And um, I think it contributes to the sustainability of your business when you're not burning people out all the time. But um, thanks for sharing your your habits. Um, what are some of the other policies at Dudeck that you find are cut above the rest or that other people would benefit from hearing? I think just our, our, our underlying culture or trust-based culture of, you know, we really have a very flat structure. We don't have a lot of, a lot of policies. Um, you know, it's like, you know, be good to each other, you know, take care of their clients. You know, it's, it's very sort of a common sense approach, but in the last several years, we've, uh, as we've gotten bigger, 
we've had to formalize certain things, but some of them are really cool. We have um, what's called do good, which is sort of a, a it's our um, philanthropy uh, program. So it's sort of like an offset where we have um, teams at DUDEC that, that they propose the, their charity or their organization of choice. And all year long, we sort of have these friendly competitions of who can raise which money as quickly as possible with, with, employ with matching um, funds. There have been, you know, ping pong contests, beach volleyball contests, all sorts of just really fun things to, to try to encourage people. Um, we have a, a, a day, an annual day, a volunteer day that um, we have off, which I think is fantastic, really encouraging people to take it. Um, we also have our Do Green, which um, is our little, um, also our sustainability, you know, uh, greening. We have lots of projects. Um, our, our employee milestone and anniversaries are um, now we do a, a tree planting. We work our, our arborists um, and our urban forestry um, team with local uh, tree foundations where, you know, you plant trees sort of in accordance with how many years you worked at Dudek. And I got to plant a tree at Balboa Park um, for my 15th anniversary. So that was really cool. That's, that's rad. So, yeah, just, I mean, we have a lot of fun. We have probably the, some of the most killer holiday parties uh, you know, I mean, we, we like to, to really have fun and, and really let people kind of relax and let go a little bit. Um, so it's, it's good. I think we, as we continue to, like I said, grow, we're not the Encinitas beach surf rack company that we were when we started, you know, we've got, you know, people in Auburn people in Kailua, Hawaii, you know, it's, it, we're not, we're not a single, you know, sort of culture anymore. And it's been really fun to see, how we evolve and, um, you know, apply all these layers of different, you know, culture to, to do that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love, th that is a lot in, in a very complimentary way of all the things you do for your team and to build your culture. And I'm definitely taking note, <laughs> might um, be inspired by some of those uh, things that you mentioned. I have about a um, hundred more questions for you, but in the interest of time, I think we'll wrap up and, Thank you so much for just sharing just such a breadth of knowledge and experience with environmental planning, environmental justice, motherhood, mentorship, leadership. There's just so much to take away. And we really appreciate your time. Um, we'll let you leave. And so we'll get up into our wrap up rapid five. So you kind of touched on this earlier. So I feel like I know what you're going to say, but what is your favorite daily habit? Yeah, it's my orange theory class uh, for sure. Orange theory? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Every, every day. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Good for you. All. all right. Three things you'd take to a deserted island. Um, a Kindle that's fully loaded. Um, probably my dog and a handle of Tito's. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite environmental policy? You know, kind of going back to the, the tribal stuff, I mean, I think, um, again, as, as challenging as it can be sometimes, I think um, AB52 and SB18, I think, have just are really, uh, to me, I've seen um, dramatically the the government-to-government -government relations improve um, with tribes and communities. And and so that that's really been one that I, I actually have, have really seen you know, in my practice, um, how that has made a huge improvement in, in both planning and environmental planning. Great. 
favorite flora or fauna? It's going to have to be, gosh, I don't even know. I, I mean, I really am liking chrysanthemums right now, which makes no sense, but it is one of those things. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need a reason. If you love it, you love it. All right. And then uh, final question, uh, finish this thought. Wouldn't it be cool if? If we had better transit opportunities uh, in, in San Diego and Southern California. Agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Carrie. It's been wonderful. We've really enjoyed speaking with you and having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have you back. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.